The following podcast is an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Rochester, Minnesota. You can find out more by visiting harvestrochester.org. We're t- talking about the whole picture, and we wanted to keep on developing of our view of who Christ is. Uh, last week we looked at Christ as the creator of all things, and we went all the way from Genesis all the way to Revelation talking about that. This week we're going to be in Zechariah chapter 3, so you can turn your Bibles there and we'll be sitting in that passage and looking at Christ in, in Zechariah 3. But we want to keep on developing our view of Christ. And the, like Andrew said, our theme verse is Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we're going to look at how Christ is the restorer of all things, how he's on the mission to, in the restoration business, bringing people back to himself, and are finishing strong with this built strong theme of Christ this cornerstone for this year. We want to bookend the year. We're going to finish strong through the month of July here. So you're in Zechariah 3. Let me give you a little bit of background to Zechariah 3. Uh, this is uh, Zechariah is one of three post-exile prophets. Um, we got Zechariah and Haggai who are ministering or prophesying to the nation of Israel at the same time. And then you got Malachi who comes 55 years later and he is the final prophet um, before going into 400 years of silence before God's people hear from God again uh, and then enter the New Testament and the new revelation there. So Zechariah, the people are coming back from being in captivity of Babylon, and he's speaking to the people, and his job as a prophet is to bring restoration back to Israel, restoring their relationship to God. That's his theme, and that's what he's doing. And it will help us to understand Zechariah is a tricky book to interpret, as I discovered this week. There's a lot of visions happening here. A lot of, and the prophecy is twofold. Um, Zechariah uses foretelling prophecy, which is about, hey, I have a message for you, the here and now, all right, in the present. And then there's foretelling prophecy, which is about, hey, I got a message for you here and now about the future, all right? So it still applies to you. It's still really important. Foretelling and foretelling prophecy. And I'll kind of make allude to that as we go through chapter three. We're going to go through the whole chapter. Don't worry. It's only 10 verses. All right. And there's foretelling and foretelling prophecy. And you got to kind of know which is which to help with the interpretation somewhat. Uh, Zechariah 3 is Christ even in Zechariah 3. Well, he certainly is. We're going to get to that in a moment. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this book here. This is a, a Where's Waldo's book. All right. Um, when I was in elementary school, the teacher would take the class to pick out a, a book from the school library, and that was like your assignment to read, to get better at reading. And uh, since I didn't like to read, I would usually either go to the picture books or like the search and find books. And in my day and age, the only search and find books available was like Where's Waldo, and there was limited reading in it. It was more about looking for where Waldo is. And uh, so that's where I went to is pulled out those books, the Where Waddles book. So I grew up with on Where's Waddle. And, and if you understand the purpose of the book is to find where he's at in the book, right? You have all these pictures and you got to find where, where is Waldo in this picture, right? Can I find him? Well, can you imagine this book uh, if they put it out, but never show what Waldo looked like? Like if you didn't know what Waldo looked like, you would never find him, correct? You wouldn't have a chance of finding him. If you kind of knew what he looked like, maybe you knew he had blue pants on and, and uh, maybe some red and white, there's a chance that you could find him. There's a chance you could mistake him for somebody else. But if you really knew what Waldo looked like, you can kind of see him here, right? 
with his blue pants, and you know that his uh, shirts kind of look like a peppermint stick, red and white, coordinating with a hat and glasses. If you know exactly what it looks like, then when you see him, you know it's Waldo, all right? And the same can be said of Christ in the, New, or the Old Testament, all right? There is, in the Old Testament, Christ is all over the Old Testament, but he's not called Jesus, or he's not called Christ. But since we've took a year to study who Christ is, Steve has done a great job of spelling that out. So is Christ the cornerstone, right? Um, we have a good understanding of who he is and what he does and what he looks like. So when we get to a passage and we read over it, we're like, that has to be Christ because that's only something that Christ would do. That's something that's on Christ's heart. He's the one who acts in that way. And then we can say, there he is. All right, so we're going to use, um, I guess, our rare Waldo theological interpretation approach to Zechariah 3 this morning, all right? Um, they don't teach you that in a seminary, uh, but uh, this is what we're going to go after. We're going to see Christ in this passage for sure. So we're in Zechariah 3. We're going to look at how Christ is a restorer of all things and how that influences my life. Lord, I just pray even now that your spirit would continue to work in my heart and in my life and that the words that come out is not my words, but your words, Lord. And we, want, we know that your word won't go forth void. We know that it will penetrate each of our hearts, Lord. Help us to have willing, receptive hearts. We're ready to change and be encouraged by your word this morning. Lord, we just pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, we're in Zechariah chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So this is a, a vision that Zechariah is having, all right? And in his vision, so far, he sees these three people, right? First of all, Joshua the high priest, who's the son of Jehozakak. Uh, Joshua the high priest is really not only representing himself, but he's representing the nation of Israel before the angel of the Lord, all right? This is not the Joshua that is the book of Joshua is written about. This is Joshua the high priest. Then we got angel of the Lord. Well, who is the angel of the Lord? We see that he's going to be an advocate for Joshua. And we're going to start applying our where Waldo's kind of theologi- the- theological here, all right, or theology here. And we're going to notice who plays the role of advocate in our lives. We know it's Jesus Christ, right, from the New Testament for sure. And we're going to see later on that um, he speaks as one as, he says, and the Lord says, referring to himself as deity. Well, then... We know it has to be one of the three. The angel of the Lord has to be either the Son of Man or, or um, has to be Christ or God, the Father, or has to be the Holy Spirit, all right? Later on in the passage, we're going to see in a couple different times that he's the one that removes sin. Well, who's the one that removes sin? It's Jesus Christ. So it's clear that the angel of the Lord in this passage is, going to be, is Jesus Christ. They pre-incarnate Jesus Christ before he took flesh. All right. This is, this is my thoughts. Uh, the general thoughts of all biblical scholars is that whenever you see the angel of the Lord in the, in the Old Testament, that it is Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. All right. He's standing there. And then we got Satan. And the role of Satan is to be the accuser. And he's going to start accusing Joshua, the high priest here. Now, how does the accuser go about his business of accusing? Well, it's interesting when he's... St- when the accuser, uh, Satan, standing before um, Christ, uh, who is God, an all-knowing God, he doesn't tell him lies. He doesn't try to deceive. Satan is actually a very smart, creative being. 
right? If he's standing before God who knows all things, he's not going to try to deceive him or try to lie to him. Instead, he's going to bring forth truth in his accusations about Joshua, the high priest, and the nation of Israel, right? So in this passage, we're going to say, we're going to see how he's going to go after Joshua and his, his sinful garments that are representing the sin of the nation of Israel. And he's going to say, look at how the nation of Israel and Joshua has betrayed you. Look at how they've turned to other gods beside you, Jesus Christ. Look at their sins are ever before you. And, and God, you're a holy, just God. You can't even stand to have sin in your presence. Those are all truthful things, right? The accuser is probably going to be saying to Jesus Christ right in that moment. Those are all truths, all right? Satan, the accuser, brings the dirty laundry of his people, of God's people, to God himself. Since Josh is the representative of Israel as the great high priest, uh, Satan chooses to go after him in particular, right? The accuser is not just going after the nation of Israel. He's going after the high priest who is the spiritual representative of the nation of Israel because he knows if he goes after the head of it, right, the rest will not be restored, okay? That's even more reason for us, church, as a body, to be in prayer for Steve and Kimberly and their family. Satan goes for the head, all right, very often. So he's bringing up these accusations and, and Satan suggests that the, since the priesthood Joshua is also polluted, uh, that the people could not offer uh, acceptable sacrifice to God, all right? So if, a, if the people were unclean, they were supposed to go to the high priest who was supposed to be clean because to, be, to offer sacrifice, you have to be clean and he would offer a sacrifice on part of the people and then they would be restored and be made clean. But here's the problem in this passage. Right? They're coming out of exile and, and they, they were in exile because of their sin, because they went away from Jesus, or Jesus Christ, because they went from God's walking with God and in their disobedience. Not only was the nation of Israel was unclean, so was the high priest was unclean. So there was no one who could present in the temple a clean, holy, acceptable offering before God. And Satan, the accuser, is saying, I got you guys. There's nothing that you can do. Let's read on in verse 2. And he says, And the Lord said to Satan, Christ said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Strong words by Christ, right? Basically what Christ is doing is standing in between the accuser and Joshua and saying, No, no, no. Right? If you want to attack and accuse and hurl these things at Joshua, I'm going to stand in between you two. I'm going to protect you. And, and, and Christ is saying it's like when you throw a twig onto the fire, all right? And when you throw a twig onto the fire, it's about to catch flame, but there's a moment that it hasn't caught a flame yet, okay? And then it, somebody could grasp it out of that and save it from the fire, and Christ is saying the nation of Israel was in desolation. They were taken captivity. And usually when things are taken captivity, nations are taken captivity, guess what? They don't return, all right? They get dispersed and they never come back. But Christ is saying God has taken them out of the fire, snatched them out of the fire, and now they're going to be restored to him. He snatches them out. And he's saying, hey, I'm going to get in between. Guess what? Satan, the accuser, uh, these are still my people. I have chosen them. 
And not only am I going to save them, but I'm going to restore them. What do I need to see about Christ in this passage of Jesus the Restorer? Number one, Christ claims me. Christ claims me. Just like he claimed the nation of Israel in this spot, he claims us too. Think of uh, Ephesians chapter 1, right? Where it talks about the doctrine of election and that God has chosen you. You're on a path of destruction. You're like that twig in the, the fire and God snatches you out and saves you and then for the purpose of restoring them to himself. Christ claims me, I am protected. I am protected. How does this develop my view of myself? I am protected by him. It's kind of like uh, my wife Crystal's in the audience right now and uh, if somebody was to bring accusations against her, all right, and I'm, I'm sitting over here and they're coming after her as her husband, I'm not just going to let it go sit there and be a bystander, right? I'm going to claim her as my wife and get in between whoever's accusing her and her, all right? What I'm doing by doing that is I'm claiming her as my own. At the same time, she is getting a sense of security. She's being assured that I, I love her and she's feeling protected. I'm not leaving her out there to dry. And that's what Christ does for each of us who call upon him as Lord and Savior is that when the accuser comes before God, Christ says, no, but I covered that. I paid for that. With, uh, with God, Satan uses truths, right? I told you he doesn't lie to God because there's no point in that. Um, but what about when Satan comes to you personally, right? What, when, what does he do when he whispers in your ear like doubts and lies and deceits, right? Because that's very real too. And I think I'd be leaving this point short if I didn't talk about that briefly as well. I think there's really two ways that Satan tries to attack us, to accuse us, when it's just me and him. And, um, you know, he's an old dog with no new tricks, all right? I think it usually it's one of two things. It's pride is often how he goes about it. He tries to puff up us, thinking that we're too hot to trot, that we don't need God anymore, that we're doing all right. I think that's one way that he kind of goes about his business, and I think the other is unbelief. He tries to cast doubts. Did God really say that? If, if God was really good, would he allow that to happen? And he casts these doubts into our minds. But even when he's meeting you and whispering those things into your heart, into your mind, the solution is still Christ. And always will be Christ. Christ is the one who protects us even in those situations because when he's trying to get us to... Uh, be somebody who's proud in our spirituality. We can go to Christ and recall who he is and his character and what he's done and, and think of Philippians chapter 2 and it'll bring us to a sense of humility instead. When I am big and God is small is when I have the problem, right? So the solution to that is when God is big and I am small, that is the solution to that problem, reversing those two roles. Secondly, who you are created, think about who you are created to be. When he's trying to get you to doubt or whisper in a, into your heart of unbelief, think about who you are created to be and that you are a new creature in Christ, as we talked about last week. And that will bring about a sense of truth and belief of who he is and what he's done in your life. 
Let's keep on reading in Zechariah chapter 3. Go back to verse 3. It says this, starting in verse 3 once again. Now Joshua is standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. And this isn't the first time we've seen, like, symbolically filthy garments represent sin before God, all right? Um, if you look at, on the screen, we have Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds, you know, apart from Christ, are polluted garments. So it's symbolic in this passage that um, Joshua is wearing these filthy garments representing that he is unclean. And my sins are the same way. They're like polluted garments before a holy God. I think uh, Joshua the high priest is noticing him more than ever before his own sins and the sins of the nation of Israel. When we understand that he's standing before Christ and we understand that Christ is the light of the world and he is ultimately holy, the closer that you become to Christ, the more evident your own sins are. His light exposes the darkness in your own heart. And he's the revealer of those things. So if there's a time in my life, which has happened before, where I think I'm doing pretty well, there's a chance that I'm not as close to Christ as I should be. That I'm not drawing close to his throne. And because as soon as I do that, the more holy I see him as, the more pure as I see him as, the more light he sheds on my life, the more I'm like, oh man, I see that, Lord. Thanks for exposing that. Let me repent and follow you and cling to you. Let's keep reading in verse 4. It says, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, and this, was, uh, this would be most likely other um, angels that were standing. Christ is talking to them. It says, Remove the filthy garments from him. That's Joshua. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And he said, or, and I said, let them put on a clean turban on his head. So they put on a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel, or Christ, was standing right there beside him. Christ was going to go about removing Joshua's filthy and stained sinful garments. He commanded the other angels to take them off and put on new pure ones instead. Part of that was replacing the turban on Joshua's head. Now, the turban was part of the uh, priestly attire. Uh, we see that in the law in Exodus 28. It gives how priests should dress. And part of their outfit was to put on a, have a turban. On the turban, it writes, uh, holiness is the Lord is supposed to be on the turban. I think that's pretty cool that, you know, as the priests walk around in their white robes, um, that holiness is, on, uh, is the Lord is because it's like, I'm not holy in myself. The holiness comes from God and God alone. Cred give credit where credit is due. It's not, I'm not clean as a high priest by who I am, but because who I serve. This turban is also symbolic and, you know, from, you know, having a turban on your head distinguishes you from the crowd because you can see from a long ways away, hey, there's a priest coming as this big turban on his head and it would help him distinguish him from the rest of the crowd. So not only was Joshua being restored uh, to God because of his sins personally, but also to his position Christ was restoring him to. Christ knew that if, if the nation of Israel was going to be restored, it was going to come through Joshua, the high priest, first being restored, bringing him back to himself. So what is it that I need to see about Christ the restorer in this 
three verses is that Christ cleanses me. Christ cleanses me. And how does this develop my view of myself and being restored? I am pure. I am made pure. What was Joshua's role in this? Right? All this is happening to Joshua. He really had two options, right? He could have ran or he could have just be like this and accept it. That's all he did. He just accepted it. So Christ is like, tells the angels, let's give him a clean clothes pierce. So they're undressing him and they redress him with new ones. They take off the old filthy hat and put on a new clean hat. And Joshua's role was just to accept it. And so true of us, right? There's nothing we can do to attain righteousness or holiness on our own. It's all through Christ and it's our job is just to accept it. And then we are made pure once again. When I stand before Christ, he does the same before, for me. He removes my filthy, sinful rags and replaces with pure ones. We are then wrapped in his righteousness. So the question is, what sin besets you right now? What sin is so filthy that you don't confess it to Christ because of shame, guilt, or embarrassment? You know he knows because he's an all-knowing God, but we're afraid to talk to him about it. Satan, the accuser, has you thinking, this stain is just too big, it's just too bad, it smells too much, and you start to, doubts start to flood your mind. Take it to him right now. Accept that righteousness that you can be put, in, uh, put on the clean clothes of the righteousness of Christ. He wants to restore himself to you and the fellowship. Let's keep on reading in Zechariah uh, chapter 3. Let's go to verse 6. It says, The angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. The word assured is really, a uh, better interpretation would be uh, protested to Joshua. All right? So it's not just like a loving assurance. It's like, I'm protesting to you, Joshua. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and if you keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and the charge of the courts and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. In this passage, um, we see that Christ is protesting to Joshua two conditions. All right? Look in verse 7. It says, Thus thus the Lord of hosts, says to Christ, if you walk in my ways, is the first condition. I'm going to give you two conditions, Joshua, and then three blessings that come out of it for you to enjoy. But these two conditions first have to be met. All right? Our really first two points are about restoration. It's about getting to the state of being restored. This one's about how to maintain once you're in that restored spot. And he says, these are the two things you need to do, Joshua, as a leader, spiritual leader of the nation of Israel, is to walk in my ways. To follow me in obedience, a willful obedience to me. Now, this is not something Israel excelled at, hence why they were taken into captivity in Babylon is because they walked in disobedience. It's because they start serving and worshiping other gods. And then God allowed them to be taken into captivity. He says, so we don't have to go through this process again, Joshua. Make it clear to your people, you need to walk in my ways. Follow me in obedience. And then it says, and keep, char- keep my charge. He's telling, this is the second condition. Joshua, be faithful in fulfilling your priestly responsibilities, is what he's telling him there. 
This is the same to us today, right? If you want to stay in a restored relationship with Jesus Christ, follow him. And then do what he's called you to do. Make disciples. Pretty simple, right? Do those two things, and you're going to have a great relationship with Jesus Christ and following him. And then we get to the uh, then, right in the middle of verse 7. Then, if you do these two conditions, then you shall rule my house. This is the first kind of blessing here. This is, hey, I'm going to let you continue in service in the temple, Joshua, if you do these two things as the high priest. And have charge over my courts is the second. This is the responsibility. Um, I'm going to give you the responsibility. I'm going to give you the authority to make sure the temple doesn't get defiled again. You're going to keep it away from adult, worshiping other idols, and you're going to keep it undefiled, set apart for me. And then the third spiritual blessing, I'll give you, you the right to access among those who are standing here. This is really the climax of the three, okay? The first one, number one leads to number two. Number two leads to number three. Number three is the climax of all these things to enjoy. And it, it, it is a climax because it means that you have access to the presence of God. What more could we ask for? If you do those two conditions, you have access to the very presence of God. So what do I need to seek? How Christ restores me? One is that Christ challenges me. He challenged me. Here he's giving a charge, it says, to Joshua, but he's doing the same thing in my heart, in my life. He's challenged me to follow him and then to live out the role, the responsibilities of making disciples that he's given me to everyone here. And in that challenge, I have access to, to the presence of God. That's how it develops my view of myself. I can go before his throne with power and confidence. I think sometimes uh, we can confuse how some of this uh, works with our relationship with Jesus Christ. And to be honest, sometimes I get confused uh, with it. I think hopefully to bring about some clarity uh, to this is uh, there are certain things in my position with God that will never, ever, ever change regardless of how I act or behave or how I dabble in sin. There are certain things that will never, ever change positionally with me and God the Father. There are certain things that, truths that will never change. Once I am saved, once I've called upon him as Lord and Savior, these things will never change. Here are some examples, all right? No matter how much I disobey or fall away from him, he will, I will always be his child. That won't change. He will never unchoose me. He'll never unelect me. The penalty for my sin will always be covered. It will always be covered, Right? because he did, took care of that on the cross, past, present, and future sin. That will always be covered, and we're always created in the image of God. We always will be called to the mission to make disciples. There are certain things, regardless of what I do, that will never be changed positionally with me and God in our relationship. The list could go on farther than that. Those are just a few examples, right? Um, but my communion or my fellowship of God can be affected by what I do where my heart wanders. We see that with the nation of Israel because of their disobedience, they went into captivity. Their relationship with God was broken and then it needed to be restored. That's where our message is today and the same can be said to us. There were always still his people, right? And that's why he snatched them out of the fire. But my communion, my fellowship with God can be affected by how I live my life. 
I am grateful that uh, at the point of salvation, when I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal savior, that he didn't make me some kind of righteous Christian robot where I only do righteous things. He still gave me free will, all right, to make decisions, to either follow him or not follow him. Therefore, when I, I choose to, to disobey or choose to sin, it affects my relationship with him. Christ is now charging me to come back or charging us to come back in obedience to him so we can have sweet communion and fellowship with him and be restored to him. We see this, uh, you know, in the New Testament in a variety of passages, the same principle still applies. Uh, I got it on the screen for you. First John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10 kind of reinforce this. Now you got to understand that this passage is written to believers, not unbelievers, all right? This is written to believers, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness. If we say we have fellowship or a relationship with him while we walk in darkness, while we walk in sin, all right, we are lying and not practicing the truth. Meaning, I can't say, I have an awesome relationship with Christ and then go all do these other things throughout the rest of the week. And I'm lying to myself and I'm lying to others as well. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice through. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship. Our relationship with one another is great. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sin. Here, a great picture, right? The getting Zechariah 3, just like he's cleansing Joshua, the high priest. He cleanses us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hence, our relationship with God is restored in that moment. And we can have, if we say we do not have sin, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. So there's this relationship with Christ that we want to keep up and keep on growing. There's going to be seasons in our life where uh, he's, yes, he's always chosen us for sure. And he always will keep us. But there's times where we walk away and he'll want to restore us back to him and, and that we affect part of that. I think of it in this way, in, a, in terms of being married to Crystal, there's times where um, we have, I would say, some of our hardest conversations come around this, hey, checking in how we're doing as a couple. You guys have those with your yeah. spouses, right? Those are hard conversations to have. But they're the most profitable conversations that we can have when we're checking in with one another, right? Um, just the idea of like, hey, where we're at spiritually as a couple, what do we need to change? How do we need to grow? Is there something I need to confess and repent of to you during that time where maybe I'm walking away and sinning against her? I'm still her husband, but I still need to come and confess and repent and restore that relationship with her. Trust me, that has happened numerous times. Talking about how is our relationship on track or off track. And the same thing needs to be done with our Heavenly Father at times too, with Jesus Christ. These spiritual checkups. How can we stay in full access to the presence of God? I think uh, there, I got four things here you can write down. They're not in on the slides. Um, I think it, it starts with a, a willing obedience. A willing obedience. We're not forced to obey or we're not doing an obligation. We want to willingly obey. Um, a repenting heart. Lord, change me. All right. Christ isn't the problem. I'm the problem. Lord, change me. So a repenting heart. Third, a confident faith. Lord, I, I, I know you can change me, right? There's nothing that he cannot change or forgive. 
and then a growing love, a confident faith, and then a growing love. You know, the more you're in the presence of God, right? The more that you're in, this is what this point is about, the more that you're in his presence, all right, walking faithfully with him, uh, the more you're going to want it the next day. The more you're going to love him more and more. Lord, I love you more today than yesterday because now I know you even more. Our relationship is deeper than it was yesterday. It's a growing love. Let's keep on going in our passage, Zechariah chapter 3. Now we're in verse 8. It says, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you. So obviously in this vision, um, Zechariah, the high priest, is representing not only the whole nation of Israel, but his friends are likely other priests that are also in the vision. They're sitting there. Uh, For they are men who are a sign, all right? They're on a mission. They have a sign. They have something to prophesize about. Well, what do they have something to prophesize about to the nation of Israel? Behold, I will bring, or uh, to be a priest about, sorry, not, they're not prophets, they're priests. What do they have to um, teach about in the temple and be a priest about? Behold, I'll bring my servant, the branch, all right? We don't have a lot of time to get in the weeds of what this branch is, but this is also a reference to Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ before the flesh is telling him that I am going to come as Messiah in the flesh. All right? And the branch is referring to him to be a Messiah. And for behold, on the, on the stone, and once again, the stone is probably referring to Christ coming back. We know him as the cornerstone in our theme verse of the year, Ephesians 2.20. We also see in 1 Peter um, Chapter 2, 6 through 8, he's referred to as the stone there. And many other places he's referring to as stone. So in two different ways, he's saying, hey, I'm coming as the coming Messiah. Remember I told you at the beginning, there's some foretelling prophecy that's like for the here and now. Points number one through three is for Israel right now. This one's a, a foretelling talking about the things to come. All right? Now that you have been restored, points number one and two, now that you know how to Keep restore, point number three. Let me show you what's the benefit of ongoing restoration looks like, all right? I'm going to come and send my Messiah, all right, Jesus Christ, to do what? It says, behold, on that stone I have set before you Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, all right? This is another way that we, applying words, words, wallow, seven eyes, you're like, that's kind of freaky, all right? Um, That was the symbolic of intelligent uh, or divine intelligence, infinite intelligence, all right? Seven eyes. That's why I only have two. I fall way short of <laughs> infinite intelligence. Uh, but Christ, um, we represent, this person will have seven eyes, not literally, but it's a representative of him being God, basically. I will engrave an inscription, declares the Lord, Lord of hosts. I will remove, I will remove, Christ will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. There's the Rose Waldo, right? Who can only, who's the person that can remove the iniquity of of sin of everyone in a single day. That is Christ. We think of, yeah, he did that at the cross as far as the covering of that. But he's also going to do it in the future where he, remember Revelation 21 last week where it talked about uh, the vision that John was having. I see a new heaven and you see a new earth and the old was passed away and uh, tears will be removed and sin itself will be totally removed. That's what this one's talking about. Christ will come back and totally do away with sin. He's basically saying there will be a final restoration and sin will be removed totally. Man, I can't wait till that day. In that day, verse 10, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor. And that's this expression of that day. Everyone will be welcome to come 
because sin will be removed. Everyone will be welcome to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Those are just symbolic. The vine and the fig tree are symbolic of peace and prosperity. When sin is removed, everyone can come and enjoy, because the final restoration, peace and prosperity that will last forever. How long is forever? Forever. It doesn't have an end. Our last one, when we're seeing how do I need to see Christ in this passage as far as restoration goes. Christ commits to me. What he's doing is committing to the nation of Israel. I'm going to restore you to a permanent state at some point. And the same commitment is for us today. He is going to come back and take away sin forever and do away with it forever. He's committing. And how does that view develop how I view myself, I can have everlasting peace. I can have peace. That Christ is committing to me, I can have a final, ultimate restoration. He's going to remove sin totally from this point onward and there will be no point in restoring anymore because we will have a final restoration. We'll find a lasting peace, a world without sin. Therefore, the byproduct is peace and prosperity. When we bought our house in 2008, um, we kind of bought a fixer-upper. It wasn't in super good shape at all, all right? So we took some time to remodel it. And what I would call for our sermon's sake, we restored it back to almost what it looked like a new house, right? So we did a lot of projects, but one of the main things we did was paint every wall, every ceiling. Um, We laid new carpet down throughout the whole house, gave it a big facelift. It looked like a new house from the inside. All right, we restored it to its glory, former glory of, of a new house. What do you think, um, that was in 2008, what do you think the house looks like now in 2016? Well, since then, uh, we've had a couple cats living with us, and we've had a couple teenage boys live with us, one of them for three years, and now we have three kids of our own, and, uh, you know, the, the carpet's a little soiled in spots, a little worn out. Uh, the walls are looking a little nicked up. There's chunks missing out of some pieces and there's scuffs all over the wall. It doesn't look like the same place in 2008, right? Basically, it looks like it could use a restoration again in a lot of places. And same true as our life. You know, what happened there? Life happened, right? Wear and tear happened. And the same is in our own heart, right? Life happens. We, we dabble in sin and... and uh, we got to go to the Lord. He's committing to us that he will restore us. We need to commit to being restored and letting him restore us. And that's on an ongoing basis until we get that final restoration will come. So if he's committing to us, what's the question we need to ask ourselves? How committed are you to him? How committed are you to him? If we want the peace that surpasses all understanding, if you want that peace that surpasses all understanding, that's Philippians 4. The only way we can do that is through a restored relationship with Jesus Christ. An ongoing re- commitment to restoring my relationship with Christ. When it's broken, I'm going to restore it. I'm going to his feet. I'm going to let him wrap me in his righteousness and clothe me in pure garments once again before God. In way of review, how does seeing Christ as a story influence my, my life? and myself. 
be thinking of these points as I read through them again. How does this apply to my life? How does this affect the manner of which I am living? What do I need to do to change and to grow? The band's going to be coming up here to play one last time, but there's a call to react, a call, a chance, right? Christ claims me. I am protected. Christ cleanses me. I am made pure. Christ challenges me, right, to walk in obedience, to live out the commission he's, great commission he's called me to do. Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe it's like, yeah, I've been walking in disobedience. And because I'm drawing near to Christ this morning, who is light, I've seen darkness disposed in my own heart, and I need to come forward this morning and talk. We're going to have some people up here at the end of the message that, that would love to talk to you, would love to pray over you, would love to read scripture over you. And you can restore your relationship with God this morning. That'd be awesome. You can have a sweet access to the presence of God this morning for sure. And this is an opportunity for that. Christ commits to me. Maybe it's, I need to be more committed to him. I need to accept what he's done for me. Maybe it's for the very first time you need to accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Maybe you've already done that, but you just need to recommit. I'm all in, Lord. I'm all in. Maybe it's, uh, and then finding that lasting peace. You know, my life is, is kind of chaotic. Our nation is at a chaotic spot right now for sure. And my heart grieves for our nation and where it's at. And we pray for that, right? Pray for peace. But it needs to start in our own heart and our own life first as we draw near to Jesus Christ for sure. Lord, we just uh, look to you now, Lord, and we just uh, come into your presence. Thanks for meeting us here. And Lord, I just pray. For my heart, I pray for the hearts of everyone in the crowd, Lord. Help us to respond. Help us to be encouraged today that our relationship is not um, suffering too, too deep of brokenness because of my sin. You can restore us at any moment, Lord, and can have sweet communion, fellowship with you. You're in the business of restoration. And there's people in the crowd that need to come, that they would come and be restored and be renewed this morning, Lord. We know that's the heart of Christ and your spirit's going to do a great and mighty work. We just pray these things in your son's name. Amen.